Hello, welcome to Cameras or Whatever, the podcast for working photographers. I'm Tyler Stallman. And I'm Cameron Whitman. And I came up with an idea for this week. Following with the original theme for this show, I, I had a, an idea of a theme. Okay. Because that's, uh, that's what we used to do. Themes are and cool. It's really easy to just talk stray about everything, but I'll, I'll try to circle back to this a bit because this was on my an original list of here's all the topics we should cover. Mm-hmm. I want to hit both of these. First, this episode, 35 millimeter as a format, okay. AKA full frame, that size of sensor, that size of negative, uh, how we work with it, ins and outs of it, um, its relationship to some of the others. And then I want to follow up next week, next episode with uh, medium format. Cool. Are you into that? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, well, I'm going to I'm going to start by telling you why I'm I'm doing this and it's a bit of a, a tease for next week. So, I think I told you I'm going to be reviewing some cameras this week. That's right. I've one in my hand right now. This just came in the mail. I'm holding the X1D from Hasselblad. Whoa. The um really beautiful mirrorless medium format camera. I'm going to I'm going to let you hear it. Oh. Weirdest shutter <laughs> ever. Cr- it's yeah. Really strange. That's really quiet. It's like clicking your teeth. Like, listen to it again. Oh, wow. And there's that really long delay, which actually isn't... Okay, well, that that actually is a kind of long exposure, but it's it's resetting the camera. So that second later click isn't the end of the exposure. It's um it's something the camera does. I, don't, I haven't figured out why yet. But. Wow, that's really strange. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not going to give any impressions on it yet because I just unboxed it. I haven't done anything with it, like except for that it feels so good. Like re- it feels really, really nice in your hand. Uh, that's all I know about it so far. And then, uh, so yeah, th- this was the idea of getting to these two episodes now, warming up to medium format next time because I'll have a little more to say about it after spending a couple weeks shooting with medium format. And then the other camera I'm going to be picking up tomorrow. And I'll have a little less time with it, but I've, I've already had some time. And that's the Sony A9. So, you know, that's obviously an exciting 35 millimeter camera. There's a lot of exciting 35 millimeter cameras these days, though. But uh, I'm going to be playing with it for to help Jordan and the Camera Store TV um, do their review of it. So, uh, yeah, I'm really excited about that. Since... Our first conversation about it, they have added picture profiles for video, which I'm, I'm sure I complained about on the episode. It was a huge limitation for video shooters. Like this, that was the reason I w- was saying, like, this can't really be considered for video. Mm-hmm. And now, kind of unfortunately uh, for me, it becomes so much more tempting because this is, this is going to be their best crossover camera, I expect. I don't need the resolution of an A7R2. This is about somewhere around 25 megapixels, I forget what. Mm-hmm. You know, really fast, bigger battery, all the things we've talked about. And and now it's going to shoot the best video of any of the current Sony cameras. So <laughs> there's so much good stuff lately. I, <laughs> oh, I can't even keep... There's also some really beautiful video cameras that came out recently, the C200 from Canon. Yeah. Okay, this episode, let's talk about 35 millimeters specifically. Yeah. This is, this is what we shoot most of the time. Right, both of us. Yeah, definitely. I think. Yeah, I think. I think then you could probably say most people shoot. Yeah, yeah. And, and if people don't, they usually either aspire to it or, or use it part time. I don't think there's well, or right, right in if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's a lot of medium format shooters that never shoot 35. 
I think everybody touches it sometimes. Yeah. It's, it's hard not to. I mean, there certainly are, but they're not that many. I yeah. I would say. Yeah. Just relatively. So what's it good for? Absolutely. Well, absolutely everything. Mostly, huh? It's, yeah. I remember how badly I wanted to upgrade. And I'm, I'm sure there's somebody out there listening too that is in this moment right now where you're spending all this time with your crop sensor camera and you just feel so limited. I want to say to everybody out there with cropped cameras, like you, you're not as limited as maybe you feel like you are. Mm-hmm. Like now when I pick up a crop sensor, I, I don't really mind it. Like I, I prefer 35. I'm going to stick to it, but you know, you can do a lot with it's, it's not the answer to everything, especially once you stop getting completely addicted to shallow depth field. <laughs> yeah. Especially. Yeah. And also, but, I like, mean, it's like you, you get a little bit of, you know, free length, <laughs> Out of it, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's true. A bit of extra reach. Yeah. How long have you been on 35? Or how long were you on cropped before you switched? Okay, so my first couple digital cameras were crop. Let's see, I think it was probably 2012 or 2011. I got the D700, and that was my first uh, full frame. Probably about five years. Right. So you were doing stuff professionally with the cropped one oh, yeah. before that, though? Yeah, yeah. No, no problem. I mean, it was, I, to be honest with you, like, when I made the Switch, I didn't notice right away, you know? <laughs> really? Were you excited for the Switch? Was it a big deal to oh, you? I was really excited, but I think I was so excited that I expected more. Oh, okay. But I, I, it didn't occur to me, you know, like, those changes are, are you know, you have to kind of, like, look deep, <laughs> you know, mm. and experience a lot of different scenarios to really notice where the differences are, I think. Well, I think also camera tech has come far enough forward that those differences have become minimized too because something that was huge at the time, which at the time for me was the the 5D Mark I. Mm-hmm. That was, I was like watching and waiting for it and I got it pretty soon into it coming out. That was my first full frame. Yeah, And, and really, uh, just for camera history, that was the first accessible full-frame camera, yes. right? I mean, everything before that was much more expensive. Yeah, I mean, that was a big deal, right? To, yeah. to have that full-frame sensor was... And to be honest, that's a lot of the wave that the 5D still rides on. <laughs> hmm. The momentum of being that first full-frame and then being the first video camera. Yeah. Those two big things gave it so much momentum as a brand. Sure did. Uh, I mean, I, I remember at a time where I, almost every person I talked to... That, that shot professionally had the 5D Mark II. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Unless you were a sports shooter or shot Nikon. Unless you were already but, addicted to Nikon for. You know, looking at that moment, mm-hmm. the 5D moment, is just another good reason why I think it's such a bad idea for people to jump ship so fast. Because th- there's tons of people that abandoned their Nikons at that time and, and went to Canon. And look at your selection now. Like, there are the best Nikons are better than the best Canons at the moment. I think um, so. So I don't know, this idea of how quickly people will jump because one manufacturer gets to a feature first, Mm -hmm. you know, don't be, don't be so short-sighted. Yeah. Sony guys. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We're talking to you. I guess it's (laughs) me too. But but I, what I was going to say about the, the big difference at the time jumping to the 5D was noise. Yeah. It was huge. You, you couldn't shoot past even getting towards like ISO 400 on crop sensors at the time. 
you'd really start to see it. 800 would be quite noisy, like as noisy as 800 film or more. Uh, you you wouldn't shoot 1600. Well, it was it was as noisy, but it was not aesthetically. It wasn't as 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 nice of a noise, you know. Yeah, like the digital noise was just kind of crappy looking. Well, and we didn't have the software to clean it up properly. No, like th- what no. we see now when we import into Lightroom mm-hmm. is both a combination of sensor technology moving forward, but also that Adobe's noise processing has come a really long way like it takes away so much of what the sensor is putting in there yeah it's extraordinary because if you look at if you take your old files that you shot in 2011 and put them in the new you know the most recent versions of lightroom you can oh yeah you'll actually get a a completely different process than you would have back then a really big improvement so in some cases i think it's you know like if you have photos that you're you know, really proud of and attached to, you know, it might be a good idea to go back and remaster them, you know? Oh, completely. Yeah. I, I've got, I've got some that really need a, a second look. You got to be careful with that though. Right. Cause it's like a, it's a rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't have time for any of it. Thank God. Thank God. I don't have time <laughs> yeah, to like, dig into the it. rabbit hole. But the other things that really blew me away at the time, noise. Um, and then things that last until now was obviously depth of field. I think that's, that's the thing people hear about first mm-hmm. is um, that that's how you get that blurry background. Mm-hmm. People ask around and first, this is, I think this is usually how it goes. Somebody gets into photography. They want to kind of make it a hobby. They buy a crop sensor camera and then they ask their friends, like, how do you get that blurry background? Cause they just have the kit lens. Mm-hmm. It's uh, you know, 5.6. Yeah. 4.5 to, 4. to 5.6. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, nothing's ever, there's no shallow depth field ever. So they go and buy a 50, get a nifty 50, 1.8 mm-hmm. and suddenly realize like, okay, great. Everything is blurry in the background, but everything's so close up. Like I, I have to take a hundred steps back. And then they realize that the crop sensor means that you're zoomed in. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I hear that all the time that people at that stage didn't realize what it meant, what 50 millimeters really meant. They heard it was a normal lens, but it's not really a normal lens on a crop sensor. No, it's, it is, it's an 85. It's yeah, like, it's a portrait lens. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, and I think that the 85, personally speaking, is is always been one of the most difficult lengths for me to, to feel comfortable with. I, I mean, I never walk around with it. No. I, I like it. I like when other people make it work, but it's not really versatile, you know. I don't feel so either, which is yeah. interesting because I, you know, I feel very comfortable with a one hundred five. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's just because I use it a lot and I've, I'm familiar with how I, you know, like to to use it. And so I, I don't know the eighty five. I just feel constrained. And so yeah, people get constrained <laughs> with their their fifty millimeter slash eighty five millimeter. And uh, and then yeah, so they they hear that you can get it turns wider on a bigger sensor, mm-hmm. and I also think that's a lot of people's first full frame lens as well is the uh, the fifty, 50 yeah, because it's it's cheap, and uh, other than that, they'd probably stick with the cropped lens series because they are usually cheaper. But uh, but now there are some really good wide entry level ones, like in the Canon side, there's the pancake lenses twenty. I don't remember if it's 24, 28 millimeters, but it's for EFS only. It's really just like a hundred and some odd dollars and uh, 2.8. Hmm. So there's, there's kind of more options now than there used to be. Yeah. If you want to stick to crop sensor and uh, the noise is great, I think. Yeah. As far as I understand it, 
is there still a noticeably less dynamic range? There was a while, a couple of years, that I was shooting with a 7D and a 5D Mark II, mm-hmm. which were from a very similar generation. They were released around the same time. But I could really see the dynamic range difference in the 5D. Yeah, that's interesting. I can definitely see from um, full frame to like uh, micro four thirds. Yeah, you know, I can definitely see a dynamic range issue. To be honest with you, with with the modern APS Cs, like I don't think that I notice it that much. It's about hitting that. There's sort of a dynamic range level that once you get there, it doesn't need to be that much better. Like little bit, little extra bits help and go towards that like really high end look. And it really depends on what you shoot, right? Totally, yeah. I mean, often you just don't need it. I was just looking yeah. at another magazine cover this week shot on the iPhone 7. Much yeah. dynamic range there, but... Uh, Which magazine was that? I, th- I think I saw... Uh, L Australia. Yeah, that's right. I saw that on Twitter. And that's just wicked. Yeah, and it looked great. Yeah, it did. But that was controlled dynamic range. Like, the photographer approached that shot to say, okay, look, we're going to do full sunlight. I don't think there's any artificial light in that. So it means that the same amount of light is hitting everything Mm -hmm. uh, direct sun on the subject direct sun on the whole background everything is perfectly evenly lit the same amount and that's what a low dynamic range camera would want so one more little nostalgia thing is that at the time that i started i was i was working at iStock photo so i was able to borrow their 1d s mark ii okay so that's the sports one Mm -hmm. sports camera from that era and what's really strange is that those cameras that were their highest end, they're over $10,000, the highest end Canons, were also cropped at the time. I think it was a 1.3 crop. They weren't full frame. Wow. Which is so weird to think about. Like, it's not even a standard crop. Yeah, what is that? <laughs> Nothing. It's, it's invented. I don't know. So. And, and it's interesting because every now and then I'll, I'll see a, an image come through the queue at Stocksy that'll be shot with that camera. And I'm always like, Wow. It just, it, you can really tell the difference. See the age of the camera? Or? Yeah. The, hmm. You know, that, I guess, you know, the age and that size of sensor, just the dynamic range, like you can really see it now. Yeah. I think at the time, people were so enamored that they probably still didn't really notice. Oh, at the time, I, that thing blew me away. I was amazed. Yeah. Um, I don't really want to go back because I don't want to be shattered. Actually, and I just heard the other day a friend at iStock told me they just sold that camera, the the, the company 1DS, <laughs> for $300, <laughs> <laughs> which was Ooh. sad to hear. But, but that had more shutter activations than you know, anything. Like, yeah. yeah. But yeah, now we live in this world of so many great full-frame options. Obviously, every brand is doing it well, but uh, some people are focusing on on smaller sensors. One thing that I, I found really interesting as I explore the crossover between video and photo more is that full frame is really a pretty new thing for most motion picture production. Like people have shot thirty five. Like thirty five is a, a film format that's existed, but super thirty five, which is effectively APS-C. Mm-hmm has always been much more common. A, a lot more cameras use it. Big high-end cameras on the movies that you watch. Uh, red cameras are like that. The FS7 is like that. It is an extremely common fo- format for professional moving pictures. And nobody ever looked at it as a limitation in that world. It was always 
the way that you think of a 50 millimeter just is different. You don't, you don't sit there and do the math of like, okay, I'm shooting on a super 35 camera. So I'm using a 50 millimeter. So on this, it's the equivalent of an 85 millimeter on a full frame. Like there's no equivalence. It was just like, no, it's a 50 on this camera. <laughs> right. But it just looks that way. Mm-hmm. So similarly, if you grow up shooting medium format, right. And you, I, I don't think if, if you've always shot medium format, you're not backtracking to do the math to imagine what it is on yeah, a full frame. Not, and yeah. that's what I do all the time. Like every time, it's the only way <laughs> I can imagine it. Exactly. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's kind of odd. I'm always having to do the math. Like, cause you know, I shoot all three formats. Well, all three, mm-hmm. that's kind of ridiculous, but I shoot large, medium <laughs> and 35. And so I'm always having to like do the math in my head. But it, I guess it's easy because with the with a medium and a large format, I don't have all the options that I have. With it's lenses. funny when you say them all in a row like that. That thirty five becomes like small, medium, and large. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when it's it's relatively pretty big. I mean, there's a lot of sensor in there. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of just historically there have been a lot of lot smaller options out there as well. So yeah. yeah. Did I mean, Did you ever have a one ten film camera? No, I didn't. No. Yeah. I did, but it was kind of like a vintage broken thing, so I, I never shot it. I mean, I think that, that we probably had one in our family at one point. Oh, no, wait, of course I did, because there was the, we had one of those Kodak, what did they call it? Because Kodak branded it as something else. Advantech? Advance? Oh, the Advantix is the... Uh, is that it? That's the APS. Is that APS-C? Is yeah. it the same crop? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I just remember figuring out what it was after I got into photography. And it was, it was the camera that my uh, like parents just had when I was young. <laughs> and going back and looking at it, I'm like, wait, that's really weird that they were selling you film that's just super small. And you're shooting like ISO 400, ISO 800 film on that tiny little oh, so piece. Bad. Yeah, not a good idea. I mean, just, it's the only way they could get camera sizes down at the time as well to be fair to the manufacturers to some extent, like you, you couldn't just keep shrinking components the way that you can with digital. Well, and the cartridges were pretty high tech too, you know, compared to yeah. like what we had experienced with 35 all our lives. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of casual filter, uh, shooters really appreciated the simplicity of it, you know? Sure. And looking back on it, I, I remember that the, um, I believe that the film and the processing was slightly more expensive. Because it was like yeah, a you new totally thing. had to get like a special thing. Yeah, yeah, and it's just really funny thinking back on that because I had to pay more for a minor amount of convenience and a and huge loss of quality. quality. <laughs> oh my god, I know. Not as sharp, not as uh, clean. No, yeah. they were horrible. Yeah, I mean, I I see some of the you know my mom had one of those cameras and you know I look back and see the the photos that that we have and just in the family albums and stuff. Well, and what a step back that is from quite a few generations earlier when people would shoot like brownies mm-hmm. and things like larger format and then <laughs> like casual cameras were big format mm-hmm. and then it shrunk back down. It's weird backstepping that happened for a while there. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating how it's just, you know, it's always all over the map. Yeah. But what I love about 35 now is how steady it's been. We're going to keep calling this 35 millimeter for a while. Um, because of like film origins. I mean, it's weird that we're going to hold on to this as a the digital standard for so long going forward. But I love that I can still go and pick up my Elance 7, which is the film Canon camera that I really like. And all my lenses look exactly the same on it. They 
it is like shooting on a 5D. It really feels the same today mm-hmm. still. So out of curiosity, I just want to kind of venture into a different frame of mind mm-hmm. in terms of 35. Is, you know, I, I, I said earlier, just like, what's it good for? And I think that what I wanted to get at with that is that 35 millimeter is, is kind of an awkward, it's a really long frame, which is, um, it's particularly great if you shoot in a cinematic style. I am totally on board with the direction you're going with this. Keep yeah. And, <laughs> and so, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I've mentioned this a lot that I, you know, I shoot a lot of events and, and, um, theater, uh, productions as well. And to be totally honest with you, like in either case, like I may shoot anywhere from zero to half a dozen shots vertically in those situations. Usually the only time I do is if I'm taking, you know, like if I'm working in an event, I might shoot, you know, like a tray of food or, you know, a tray with a a glass or something like that vertically Mm -hmm. uh, or some food, you know, some still life product or something like that. But anytime that there's people in it, like I almost never shoot it vertically because I just feel like it's so long that it's, it looks kind of awkward in, um, in that orientation. I 100% agree. Um, and I've actually really started changing my habits because of this. Mm -hmm. For me, I already shoot a lot vertical, um, partly because so much of what I'm shooting is fashion stuff and vertical just makes sense for that to show an outfit. Right. And since Instagram allowed for different aspect ratios, uh, vertical just takes up more of the frame. Like I like the way that it looks more. Mm -hmm. So I strongly favor it, but yeah, four by six feels way too long now. And what we've done on Anya's blog, which is like the final place that a lot of things go is I started basically doing a magazine image ratio stuff. So that means that wide images are four by six. So it's like a full spread, like a double page spread. Mm -hmm. And vertical images are three by four. So two three by fours stack perfectly on a four by six. And once I thought of this, I was like, why haven't I been doing this for years? Mm -hmm. This makes so much more sense. (laughs) And it all feels cohesive like it doesn't you don't look at it and think everything's because it really frustrates me when people change to arbitrary aspect ratios like it never looks good if they just crop to a random number you you got to stick to some constraints here but those two just go really well together they're a natural fit for each other and they stack perfectly in a layout the verticals don't feel too tall yeah i've been really happy with it that even still has started to feel a bit tall for me because I think mostly because of Instagram because it's four by five mm-hmm. and that started to feel like effectively in an ideal vertical format for me. Like that's what feels right. Yeah. I think you just nailed why people say, they say that about the, the Mamiya seven, the six by seven format, just in general, they say it's the, the quote unquote ideal format. I think that I was always kind of like, why? And I think that's how I came to understand this this kind of frame of mind about 35 is through shooting that camera because i i find that many of the photos that i that i like the most with that camera are actually vertical mm-hmm. and it's because of that ratio it's really kind of amazing it's it's beautiful and like i think that um feels like a photograph <laughs> you know yeah. whereas like when you when you 
flip a 35 vertically, sometimes it just feels really awkward. I think that it's also, it's one of these things that I think a lot of people will hear us say that and, and, and think that we're really pretentious or like, what are you guys talking about? I don't see that. You know, I, no, shoot. I, th- I think once we say it, everybody's going to look at their photos and be like, oh yeah, I totally see it now. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm overestimating, but that's how it clicked for me. Like once I started seeing how weirdly tall it was, especially on digital format. Okay. Actually, no, this this could go so deep because I was going to say, especially on digital formats, four, uh, four by six is so tall. Uh, so when you look at it on a computer screen, it's it's way too tall because the screen is wide, right? So if you have a web design, it's much easier to fit a wide image. So if you have a vertical image, don't make it too tall. Mm-hmm. But we've also got phones. Mm-hmm. And phones you naturally hold in a, a vertical position. Yeah. Like most of the time. So things like Snapchat or Instagram stories, those look best held vertically. I kind of held on for a little while with those and and I would shoot them horizontally, but I've totally embraced the vertical on that because it just looks right when it fills your screen. Yeah. And, and that ratio is, I think, even further than four by six. It's, uh, it depends on the phone. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's really tall. So I don't know, maybe I'm just confusing things a little. <laughs> I was just about to say how... Uh, there's no use for it, but obviously there are. No, I mean, I think if I think if it it just makes sense logically, you know, like if you consider the origins of 35, literally came from, you know, a cinema format, right? And so, you know, it was it was always meant to be wide and meant to be, you know, horizontal. <laughs> I mean, that's what it was. It was designed to be. When you started flipping it, you know, I mean, it works. You know, there's plenty of time. Like, you know, when I look at just just I mean, I can go on to like any photo website and see millions of vertical 35 images that look just fine. For me, it starts to get weird. And especially the wider the lens that you use, oh, the weirder time. it gets for me. Especially, you know, lines just start to get really weird distortions, curvature. It's just yuck. But, you know, I'm kind of snobby, I guess. If you're an editor, if you're a photo editor, a critic, or you know anything like that, and you see just thousands of images per week, you're gonna get new perspectives. You're, you're gonna, gonna change form your an mind. opinion. Yeah, yeah, and you're gonna you're gonna get a strong opinion. You just have mm-hmm. to, you know. Otherwise, you know, you just start to say, "Yo, yeah, that all looks fine." Yeah, and then you're not even critical at all, and then you don't have taste. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Just get back to the cinema thing. Like, like there's no application for an extra, extra narrow uh, vertical format. As far as, like, framing goes. Okay, yeah. Like, there's... If you're doing uh, posters in a mall, there can be reasons to fill up a super tall vertical screen. But in the world, we just don't perceive it that way. Yeah. Right? It's like, not We look at the world horizontally more or less. That's where most of our peripheral vision is going on. Mm-hmm. And there just aren't a lot of subjects that the interesting things to see are way up and way down. All right, well, let's let's condense this just to a single uh, idea. So, you know, like you see the images on the bus and they're almost always wide horizontal images, right? But then yep. you, you see the images at the bus stop and they're almost always vertical. Mm-hmm. But which is arguably getting more eyeballs it's going to be the bus because it's actually moving around town well and also the way that you see that bus ad like it passes by you horizontally Mm -hmm. 
I mean, you might see it all at once from a distance, but if you're anywhere near it, you kind of see the left and it moves by until you see the right. And that's just, that was actually, I was going to exactly say that. We also read either left to right or right to left is, you know, just humans. And so reading uh, up to down is just a little bit, it's, it can be a little jarring. I'd be curious how, you know, those eye studies where they just like track eye movement as you look at mm -hmm. things, look at a photo, look at a web page. I'd be curious how we read the similarly composed vertical and horizontal photos, how we read them differently. Like, do we do what we do in a book? You know, do we always go left to right, left to right, left? To, like, I don't, I don't think we move down an image that way, right? I don't think so. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like it's linear. It's more based on the subject, right? You, well, and, your eye and goes focal to, point, right? Yeah. Yeah. Your eye goes to whatever subject draws your attention first, and then you move to the next subject. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, it either spirals around, zips around, or, you know, depending on how your lines are, it could just lead you right off the, the image immediately. Yeah, it's it's all fascinating stuff. Like there's there's some pretty awesome science in there, mm -hmm. and I wish I knew it. <laughs> I mean, I feel, I feel like I know it subconsciously. I think it's better to just know it subconsciously because the only people that talk about the details of it are generally hobbyists. You don't see a lot of pros that take a photo and then analyze it by the math. No, not by the math here. So, <laughs> yeah. Just getting a feel for it is a lot more practical, I think. Yeah, although I have moments. You have math moments? Well, not literal math, but figuratively. You know, like I, I'll take an image into Lightroom and go into the transform module and just tweak it for forever until everything just feels perfectly mathematically correct. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, but you used to play in a math rock band, didn't you? <laughs> There's your problem right there. It's, yeah. You know, off topic, but I just read this. Well, I, I didn't get to read all of it because it was like absurdly long, but I was reading this article. God, and I got to look it up and, and give it for you to, to you for the show notes. But it was just about the absurdity of prog rock. <laughs> and uh, it was just kind of funny because it was coming from a perspective that's the opposite of what the way that I looked at it. But then they also made the point that it was like very much favored by blue collar Americans more than anyone else. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's totally where I grew up. <laughs> right. So that's that's why you had your perspective of it. Yeah, but it's just really kind of funny because I think that there's this, especially within the way that it was talked about. You know, it's like this blue collar thing is being said as if you know it's not as it's lower brow, like it's not as smart. But mm -hmm. I always thought of prog rock as being like smarter ultra smart yeah but you know i think that with time and experience you can look back and go like no not really <laughs> well since we've drifted topics and i have a slightly compressed schedule tonight do you want to give me your thing for the week yeah i have to remember what it was because oh should i should i go first yeah so you, have you a go chance first. to remember yeah okay well i need a minute to remember <laughs> no i you know okay i'll, I'll just t talk about what what i discovered today which blew my mind. And you saw me mention it on Facebook. And it's the um, the new uh, 2017 Deluxe Edition remaster of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Oh, Pokemon. yeah, that's worth talking about. And, you know, this is, like most of us, this is a record that we've all been listening to in our entire lives. And I'm one of those that, that I could say that I know every sound on the record. And so I know it so intimately 
that immediately when I heard this remaster, I felt like I was listening to something completely new. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Like, before I heard it, I wondered if, like, you have to listen carefully for the differences. But it just jumps right out. No, yeah. There's no subtlety here. And it's it's. It's freaking amazing. I'm in. I'm in complete awe. And you know, as a person who I take a lot of, I, I feel like I have. Everybody thinks that they have good taste in music, so that's mm-hmm. a stupid thing to say. But I think I listen to music critically. And if you like the Beatles, and even if you don't, if you just like brilliant music, just listen to this. Because what's your favorite Beatles record? Right now, that's this. <laughs> it's been I guess a, before this came out. What would you have said? Uh, it's like which if you could get a remix of any of them, um, it wasn't this only this option. Which one would you take the remix of? You know, honestly, I think that most of the time I probably like the White Album the best. Oh, that's you stole mine. Yeah. No, yeah, I mean, it, I think there's it, good reason for that. You know, yeah. um, but it's also it's an amazing record, but it's also just sort of a Beatles record, you know what I mean? Because like they weren't really jiving too well as a unit at that time. You know, mm-hmm. I think that Sgt. Peppers is is a really interesting time for them because they were they were just at their absolute peak as a as a unit, as a mm-hmm. as a group. And you could argue that um Abbey Road was was comparable. I mean, it's a brilliant record That's and it's great. you know it's it's um, I mean they're they're all pretty great in my book. They're all pretty great, yeah. But I also buy into the argument that like a lot of the quality from the Beatles comes from that conflict. Oh, absolutely. The fact that they were getting along so poorly. Like all art. Can, yeah, can be the reason it's amazing. And then um, once you see them go on their way, I mean, they produce some good solo stuff too, but that John and Paul butting heads was the source of so much of the best moments. God, it's it's so interesting because I think with the Beatles, it's it's really it's really easy to say who's your favorite Beatle and and say, well, you know, I like John or I like Paul or I like George, which you know probably less just because he had less songs. But <laughs> I I've always kind of sided with John. Yeah, and you know, right now when I'm listening to this remaster, I'm just like, God damn, Paul McCartney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, n- I can never pick because I always, I feel like there might be, a, I like the edge that John has, mm-hmm. but I also know he's kind of a, like, he's obviously a bit of a dick. Yeah. Like, I just don't think I'd like him and I can't help but, but think about that when I compare them. So it's fascinating because I think they're all more likable as, as, as an individual person than John was, yeah, but course. John as an artist suddenly becomes in my book a little bit more compelling Mm-hmm. And the reasons why are because, you know, his uh, upbringing was definitely more strained than any of the other ones. You know, like yep. he had a he had a pretty rough go and um, you can feel it. And, you know, that's something that um, I think that anybody that, that allows that comes up like that and that allows themselves to be as like exposed as, as somebody like John Lennon was. Um, that's a hell of a thing to have to do. And I don't think that it's easy to be a nice person. Oh yeah. I, I can't say I'd do any better. No, you know, and I think that it, it takes, it takes an incredible amount of maturity and, um, introspection, I think to be able to like absorb kind of a traumatic upbringing and recognize it for what it is and, and still want to see the good and move forward. And, you know, it's, it's really just, it's complicated stuff. And, you know, I think that John really wanted to, to be a great person but he was just so tortured. Yeah. 
So well, it turned into great music. Yeah, it did. I'm going to take a total left turn for mine, uh, unrelated to any of these things. Mm-hmm. But I just got a Google Wi-Fi system. What the heck? <laughs> so there's a lot of options for this right now. It's like a really competitive space, and that's mesh Wi-Fi networks. Um, the issue being that there's just little pockets of our apartment that have always had Wi-Fi issues, and uh, we need to get through a bunch of walls to just based on where our modem sits. So if anybody hasn't heard, mesh Wi-Fi is when you basically have a bunch of individual little routers that all talk to each other mm-hmm. and spread the Wi-Fi around a little <laughs> more evenly. So that it's it used to be that you could have a primary router, like with Apple airports, you'd get an airport and then add airport expresses that might like boost the signal. It's similar to that, but more built, more purpose built to always have multiple units working together to get the signal everywhere that you need it to be. So the box comes with three of these, and so far it's been pretty great. But I also only chose the Google because it was the only one I could really easily get in Canada. For some reason, the other main competitors in this space just aren't aren't really available here. I don't really know what's going on. Hmm. But like Eero is also well-regarded, and um, one called uh, Plume. So there's a few different ones, but I do recommend anybody having trouble with Wi-Fi space. All of all of these are kind of equally well-reviewed. They all seem to work very well. I've been happy with mine so far. So That's interesting. I think I'm going to be coming back to that pretty soon. It's totally the, the way of the future for a, a lot of people's situations. I mean, everybody fights with Wi-Fi, so. Yeah, well, and we've, we've had a really lo- good go with our current situation but we're going to be moving i'm pretty sure we're probably looking to get a townhouse oh okay cool and so there's just yeah that's perfect use case for it yeah and that's that it was just something that's kind of been on my mind it's like well i I think that we're gonna end up having the wi-fi downstairs because (laughs) you know wherever my office is i have to be close to that but then you know i know that at night upstairs my wife is going to be wanting, wanting to watch Netflix and she's going to be yelling at me about the Wi-Fi sucking. And so. yeah. No, I, I totally look into it. It's, it is a really smart solution. Awesome. 